You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Good morning and welcome to The Beltway Briefing. You have Patrick Martin as your host live 7 a.m. or just after 7 a.m. Central Time. Towner French and Caitlin Martin, our fearless leaders, Mark and Howard, are recovering from jet lag after their amazing trip to Israel. If you haven't listened to their podcast yet, please give it a listen. I can't uh, believe they flew there just to do a podcast. I know. I it's unbelievable. I, it's, there, there's some, someone's going to look into that for sure. But <laughs> <laughs> definitely take a listen. A lot of interesting geopolitical observations. But I think the conversation everyone wants to have, separate of, obviously, there was a great conversation in Israel, and we just saw uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is, is back in power. But I think the world is watching Connor and Caitlin, the United States, and looking to see how our elections go next week, four days away, which is unbelievable. It always feels like it creeps up on you, right? And this last stretch goes um, so slow, and then it comes so fast at the end. The end hits you exactly. But you know, everyone, all, all of us, day to day, we're following the same polls. We're texting and calling each other. Have you seen this? Have you seen that? Want to get your thoughts four days out. I mean, separate of some kind of unthinkable thing happening over the weekend, you know, the die is essentially cast here, right? And we just don't know who's going to end up coming out to vote, but you sort of feel like the environment is set. And now, you know, we just wait for the results. As we look to the House and the Senate and all the back and forth on what's going to flip, you know, Towner, let's start with the House. What are you seeing at a macro level? And then what races should our viewers be looking at on election night to kind of give an indication of what night it's it's going to be like? Sure. Thanks. And, you know, I think on a macro level, we're definitely seeing a shift over the last two weeks. And that shift is reflected it, not just in in polling. It's it's reflected in dollars. It's reflected in sentiment. I think it's it's been across the board that uh, the House is definitely leaning uh, more Republican. We're uh, we're a long ways away from the from the articles we had five or six weeks ago uh, that were coming out saying, "Hey, could Democrats really hold the House?" And you know, there was that that period of time where really it was the Dobbs messaging. I think that was reaching a, a crescendo, probably that uh, that sort of encouraged Democrats. And and Biden's polling numbers took a surge around that time period as well. But all that's changed, uh, especially in the last two weeks. Uh, and and we've seen, I think, a lot of that. Patrick, you talk about this a lot, that late break that we see before Election Day uh, really move in the direction of Republicans. And and that means that independents are moving towards Republicans, white suburban women that we watch a lot that we've talked about. I've, I've opined on in this podcast before uh, as far as the, uh, the the sought after electorate are moving in the Republican direction. And so that's where it's going in the House. I mean, we're now talking about uh, a 30 seat pickup is not out of outlandish. 
Um, it's very possible. I think my predictions have generally been in the 15 to 20 range for the better part of this year. And certainly 30 is, is practical uh, at this point, four days out. As far as races that, that you know, we're looking at across the country and, and sort of how to tackle or approach election night, I guess, a little bit as well. A, a few things pop out to me. The first is, you know, that we, we have really, um, uh, I think, understood that different areas of the country where Democrats are generally prevalent are now open for business for Republicans. So when you look first to the Northeast, you have Republicans competitive in Rhode Island, too, to replace Jim Langevin, who's a who's a pretty middle of the road, if not progressive Democrat uh, in Rhode Island. Uh, you have hey, Tyler, that's a great example. Open seat. But yeah. this is not a race. I think Democrats really thought they had to worry about six months ago. Right. I mean, no, not were, at all. Yeah. And I severely doubt Langevin would have retired if he thought in for a second that his seat would be lost. He, he's just retiring to retire, quite frankly. He wasn't retiring for any particular reason, to my knowledge. And so um, but even, you know, Republicans are looking at where. Uh, Democratic candidates may not fit their district necessarily. Ayanna Presley in Massachusetts, who's a who's on the squad, she is. I mean, she would not be upset. I think for me to describe her as progressive, uh, and and Republicans are trying to beat her there because they're saying she is too progressive, even for this Massachusetts district. And and uh, Republicans are putting money in there. I think Presley's still going to win, but you know the fact that that a Massachusetts uh, congressional district can be competitive is is something that is of note. Maine, where the battle back and forth between Jared Golden um, and uh, Bruce Poliquin continues again this year and could flip again, um, potentially. Um, and then, you know, so you look at that's where sort of Republicans have some some inroads. Patrick, you were talking about the Chicago suburbs uh, and some of those districts where Republicans are being competitive. Yeah. Cook Report moved two races, you know, where I live and many of our colleagues live, uh, DuPage County. And uh, the thing to remember here and Tanner, you pointed this out in Nevada and we'll have more on Nevada uh, shortly. But, you know, these are races in Illinois these were districts that were gerrymandered. So you, you have you have races that are competitive that were drawn specifically to protect the Democratic incumbents that are now in jeopardy. Um, and that that's just, to me, a sign of, of kind of the tipping point we're potentially dealing. I, I think both of them could be fine on Election Day. You know, we'll get to candidate quality in a second, uh, Caitlin, when we talk about the Senate races. I think in the two congressional races here in Illinois, if there were a little bit better candidates, I think these would be like really winnable. And and they're you know they they still could win, but um, you know you're seeing a lot of of races. I think that maybe people didn't anticipate uh, that are competitive. And that Tanner, to your point, that's how you go from like a 15 or 20 seat night to like a 30 or 35 seat night, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you know it, when you look at the toss ups alone, I mean, there's there's 25 legitimate Democrat districts that are toss ups, and there's about 10. Republican districts that are toss ups. And so just on the on the face there, you see, you know, look, the House is gone. You, and we've started with that premise. But, you know, the question is, how how high can this go uh, over the course of the next four days before uh, before Election Day? Definitely. Let's pivot to the Senate. Caitlin, you spent a lot of time, you know, with the folks of the Republican Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee. You have been to a ton of events this cycle. I feel like your conversations with leadership, you have a good sense of kind of 
what the map looks like, where Republicans are feeling confident, maybe where they're a little less confident, but hopeful. What are you seeing four days out as we look at the Senate map and the potential for Republicans to maybe take back the majority? Thanks, Patrick. Well, what we're seeing really is there's, look, there's been a big shift from the way that we all felt June and July this past summer to to where we are today. Um, you know, there was some real concern about some of these candidates. Trump, mm-hmm. President, former President Trump, as we know, got involved in a lot of these primaries. I call them the, the imperfect Republican candidates. We had some concerns with Herschel Walker and some some of his baggage and, and past scandals. Um, you know, Blake Masters in Arizona wasn't exactly uh, the the top pick of uh, Mitch McConnell type Republicans. Um, Dr. Oz, you know, he's he's really kind of come home and, and moderated himself since the primary. But despite the fact that, as I like to say, we have some imperfect candidates in these races, we are seeing these, we are seeing many of these candidates up. Um, We are seeing neck and neck races, some of our pickup opportunities, like Nevada. Um, The latest poll that I saw there, that's Senator Cortez Masto's seat against Adam Laxalt. Um, Emerson College poll had Laxalt up by five this week. Wisconsin, we were a little worried earlier about Ron Johnson, sort of another not imperfect candidate, but you know, he's had it has an interesting record as a senator. He's won twice, right? I mean, he's, he's a proven right. vote getter. And right. and for all the talk about Republican candidate quality, uh Towner heard me talk about this yesterday, Caitlin, but Mandela Barnes, like not cutting it. <laughs> I mean, this should have been a competitive race. Not I think Johnson's gonna win comfortably. He just he oh, didn't absolutely. Have it. Yeah, I'm not even make this concerned about uh, concerned about that. I mean, how does that guy not lose though? Oh, over and over again. I mean, he's just like full Trumper at this point. I mean, must be a Wisconsin thing. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Like that's like a Steve King thing for me. Well, let me ask you guys this, Caitlin. I think to candidate quality and and like you know everyone's talking about the Ohio race and particularly inside the Beltway. I I think most people with clear eyes think JD Vance will be will be fine and will pull it yeah. out. But Tim Ryan, I don't think anyone could say he is not outrunning expectations and probably will outperform Democrats, some some Democrats were there on election day. Caitlin, if you have a Tim Ryan in Wisconsin, does that race get a lot more competitive, right? Isn't it all about just kind of like what the matchup is and where and and where we're running people in an environment like this? Yeah, I think so. Though what I will say about Tim Ryan, he's trying to portray himself as a moderate, but he's got a pretty progressive voting record and he is not exactly a moderate. So I'm not quite sure how that would play in, in Wisconsin. It doesn't seem to be playing all that well in Ohio, which is why I think we're seeing J.D. Vance kind of pulling ahead there. Uh, but New Hampshire, that's, that is my classic example of, I think I said on the podcast that week after the New Hampshire primary, when Dan Bulldock won that, all right, well, that was a great pickup opportunity that Republicans are once again going to lose because of candidate quality. Well, uh, we might be have in for a surprise in New Hampshire on election night because um, there was a St. Anselm poll out this week that had him leading 48 to 47, um, Senator Maggie Hassan and that again, that that was one that Republicans thought was a strong pickup opportunity if we could have gotten someone like Governor Sununu to consider running against her, but still very much in play. So look, my prediction is it's going to be a, a bit of a blowout on Tuesday night. I, I think we are going to see a 52-53 um, Republican Republican seats. Um, and I think that there's a lot of these races that are just so much closer than we than we really thought and anticipated they were going to be just two months ago. 
Yeah, no, you're, it's a great point. And to your point on the St. Anselm poll, I mean, for our viewers who follow polls, I mean, it's hard to do, period, because they're wrong all the time. But my counsel to you as you're looking at polls to anyone listening would be if, if you're an incumbent senator and St. Anselm is the premier poll in New Hampshire, if you're down 48-47, you're probably losing by three or four points. <laughs> I mean, assuming that poll is accurate, you're not, it doesn't really mean you're down one. If you're below 50% and you're the incumbent, there's going to be a tip that happens. And that, I mean, it could potentially be worse than that. Now I think she could still pull it out. Yeah. And the thing on candidate quality, we've talked about a ton in these podcasts, but you know, from the democratic perspective, Maggie Hassan, Raphael Warnock, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, uh, who else am I forgetting? I'm Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly. None of these are folks that I consider to be bad senators or mm-hmm. bad candidates, or I don't think any of them, there is a feeling among Democrats of like, oh, my God, they can't get out of their own way. They're so bad. They like th- th- that feeling doesn't exist. The environment is taking over here. Yeah. And yeah. over the past several cycles, we were texting this morning. I have seen on both sides some very talented politicians and U.S. senators lose right. when the environment just overtakes it. I remember like Mary Landrew in Louisiana. I, I, she is she was such a talented vote getter. She was such a survivor in so many cycles, but in 2014, it mm-hmm. just was too much, right? You, there, there wasn't enough ticket splitting and kind of ability for your own personal brand to, to persevere. And you end up just falling victim to the cycle, right? Yeah. And I like all of those senators, by the way, that's, a, that's, I, I mean, I'm, I know I'm like the moderate Republican here. Uh, I'm the squish compared to Caitlin. Uh, but like, I love, I mean, I worked with Mark Kelly before he was even a Senator. I, yep. I, he's a great guy. And, uh, and Warnock has been incredible. His staff's been excellent. I mean, across the board, these are, these are people who you really want to actually be a Senator. Uh, and you look to, and you say they have a good head on their shoulders and they, they, uh, you know, they reflect uh, well on on the country and the office. So, yeah, this may sound kind of swampy to our viewers, but like the moderates, the the, the senators and, and Congress people who have to run in close races every time, they tend to be the best members. And it's not because they're flip floppy or anything like that. Yeah, they oftentimes come from places where they have to get votes from people who disagree with them. They also know that they're vulnerable. So it's in their best interest to listen to everyone, to, you know, take meetings, to be available. I mean, if you're just a blue senator in a blue state or red senator in a red state, it's not all that hard, assuming you don't do anything really stupid, right? I mean, it, you're, you're going to win. Uh, two other, you're absolutely right, Patrick. Two other races I just want to mention for our yeah. listeners today that you guys might roll your eyes at me, but I feel like I continue to raise them. Keep an eye on Colorado. I know town is yeah. Keep an eye on Colorado. John O'Day is, is, is an example of an excellent, I would call him the perfect candidate for that race yeah. um, against Senator Michael Bennett, a good, moderate businessman, really middle of the road, not Trumpy at all. Yeah. Um, I think that one is going to be pretty close. And, well, look, and Colorado. Yep, go ahead. I, I just want to say one thing real quick, Caitlin, and interrupt you on Colorado. Colorado is one of the few places where the 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 anti-Trumper Republican beat the Trumper Republican in the primary. And, yeah. you know, that's that's one of those, you know, it hasn't happened very much 
uh, as we look at some of these Senate races, Bulldog and Herschel Walker and Blake Masters yeah. and Laxalt, and you name it across the board. But Colorado is one of the few places where the the anti-Trumper Republican, the middle of the road Republican actually beat uh, the Trumper Republican. And and he's a O'Day is a great candidate. I mean, and if he doesn't pull it out and all the Trump candidates win, the Trump, the, the MAGA people will be saying, see, you should yep. <laughs> you exactly. missed your opportunity. Yeah, that's exactly and, right. And- the other one I wanted to mention is Tiffany Smiley in Washington is giving Senator Patty Murray a run for her money. Uh, the DSCC is having to spend money there that they never expected to have to spend to defend um, Senator Murray there. She is obviously the chairwoman of the powerful Senate Health Committee. And she's going to be appropriation. Number, number three in leadership. Number I mean, three in leadership. Oftentimes talked about next terms. Democratic leader of the Senate. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, and we're talking about the Pacific Northwest. We are talking about Washington State. And look, that's I'm not saying Tiffany's going to pull it out, but it's going to be damn close. Well, your point is the fact that it's competitive, that says a lot. This is Washington State. Um, you know, so what I want to kind of ask both you guys and Caitlin, I'd love your perspective first on this. We talk a lot about the environment and how voters are feeling. I mean, we watch this every day and we, you know, sometimes I have a hard time believing like anything's changing day to day because we're just we're just in it. But there does seem to be these peaks and valleys of like how people feel. Tanner brought up the Dobbs kind of feeling over the summer. But my sense is as we've settled in, everyone has kind of come back to number one by far the economy inflation and just economic uncertainty. And then maybe a number two crime and sort of social, you know, uncertainty and whatever else. But I mean, do you feel like that's ultimately what is creating this kind of final tip in the environment? Absolutely, Patrick. There was a really interesting Wall Street Journal poll out this week that highlighted that white women in suburban areas, we always look at this sort of this group as a, which make, which is comprised of about 20% of the electorate, they are now favoring Republicans for Congress by 15 percentage points. This is the group that really swung in 2018 when we saw um, Democrats pick up a lot of these moderate suburban seats um, that swung for Dems then. They're coming back towards Republicans now. And the reason is they're citing rising prices as the very top issue. Um, 34% of, of this group said that that's their number one issue, these kitchen table, you know, how they're, the grocery impacts of Thanksgiving being more expensive, grocery prices, gas prices, the fact that their 401ks are significantly less than they were three, four years ago. Um, and they have more trust in Republicans over Democrats to handle the economy and inflation. And then the second piece that I want to mention is keep an eye on the Hispanic vote. The Republican Party has done a ton over the past couple of years to really make inroads within um, the Hispanic community. And, you know, despite Democrats' missteps with Latinx and some of these, you know, ridiculous um, initiatives over the years, Hispanic voters are not a monolith. And they're really shifting towards Republicans. We see this in Nevada. Cortez Masto is is a Hispanic woman and isn't even getting exciting the Hispanic base. And if she can't get there, what we're seeing across the board, whether it's some of these house races in Texas, um, down in South Florida, keep an eye on that Hispanic vote. Those are two critical things. And again, that's inflation, that's gas prices, that's crime. That's those kitchen table issues that are impacting everyone across the country right now. Yeah. Yeah, And to your point, Caitlin, about sort of demographic groups not voting in a monolithic way, I mean, Towner, you've represented suburban members in Congress. You've been through some of these flip cycles in the House. I mean, 
my sense kind of from where I live uh, and you just, you just talk to people and you just make observations about what you're seeing. And my sense is that, you know, the, the suburbs, you know, where I live, DuPage County, whether it's mainline Philadelphia, some of the New York suburbs, like suburbs are kind of suburbs. I mean, they all have their different uh, sort of, you know, idiosyncrasies, but they're, they're, it's people who oftentimes lived in the city, you know, college educated, moved out to the suburbs to maybe get a little bigger house, you know, good public schools, um, just, just, you know, just to try and have that kind of, uh, family kind of set up life. And they have trended democratic the last several cycles. And I think I've seen the suburbs where, where we live have gotten a little more diverse, um, you, you know, a little younger, but what I'm wondering is if that really had a lot to do with Trump, if it, and, and now this is the first election, he's not the incumbent president, he's not on the ballot. Mm-hmm. He's relevant, obviously. He's he's involved and he's picking candidates for these Senate races. I mean, he's not like a non-factor. But I just wonder, Towner, if some of the voters who have been trending, de- who have voted Democratic the last few cycles out of purely a, di- a real distaste for Donald Trump, feel a little sense of like, OK, I can kind of come home now. The economy's a mess. I, I don't have to fe- I don't have to feel like I'm threatening the future of the republic by voting for a Republican member of Congress in my suburb. Like, is that what you think is Despite happening? Despite what Joe Biden says. Despite what Joe Biden says. I mean, right, right. Yeah. We'll talk about the threat to democracy as a messaging point in a minute. But Tanner, I mean, is that you is that what you yeah, think? I, you know, this has gone, I mean, in, in previous weeks on this podcast, we I have talked Ooh. and we have talked generally about how this is a, a crime message for Republicans versus an abortion message for Democrats. Uh, but I think the biggest takeaway for me is in the last two weeks, this has become so much more a 1992, it's the economy stupid election than we ever thought was going to probably be the case at the end of the day. And that just decimates Democrats, because even though I don't actually think Joe Biden did anything to cause the inflation necessarily, I don't. I think some of the spending was necessary. I know, Caitlin, I know, I know, I know. But at the end of the day, you know, I like infrastructure dollars. This is, these are good things. But at the end of the day, you know, Biden owns the economy, whether he likes right. it or not, because he's presidents get too much credit and too much blame. Right. Yeah. And this is a perfect example. Washington. Yeah. Both congressional majorities are Democratic. You have a Democratic president in the White House and the economy feels unstable and inflation right. is at a historic high. And people look at their portfolios and they're down, you know, 19 to 25 percent. And people don't feel good about any of kind of the core fundamental economics. And Caitlin mentioned some of the kitchen table issues. And I think that was going to be the reality no matter what. I mean, I don't think people thought inflation would be this bad. But the reality is that, you know, we've seen so many of these flips in the last 20 years that, you you know, sometimes I ask myself, like, what could the White House really have done? It's every cycle. It's like, oh, it was a messaging problem. I also just think sometimes you just lose and there's yeah. not a lot you can really do about it. I mean, I mean, I wrote a million pieces in 2006 about the fundamentals of the economy are strong as Republicans are getting swept out of office uh, in 2006 in Congress. 
And we were putting out, you know, op-eds left and right because the fundamentals of the economy were very strong at the time mm-hmm. in 2006. But there were indicators that were not good. And Democrats seized on those. And that was part of the reason. Then you had the Foley stuff. Then you had, you know, Denny Hastert getting protested on the way back to his house right. uh, from his district and the whole thing. But, you know, but it was really that also 2006 was a, an economy election, even though un- the fundamentals and U.S. compared to everybody else in the world, we were a pretty dang strong economy at the yeah, time. Yeah, and you could point to like 2010, too. I mean, listen, the economy had not recovered, but we were making progress. And I think a lot of Democrats at the time were very frustrated because they were like, what the heck do you want? Like the economy got driven off a cliff. Unemployment's high, but, you know, <laughs> like we're, we're working mm-hmm. on it. We're, you know, we couldn't fix everything in 18 months. Sorry. Um, but it didn't matter. People like we have elections every two years in this country. People get impatient and pissed off and they don't really know what to do except vote the guys who are in out and vote the other guys in. So, I mean, we, we go back and forth on this a lot. Some of it I think is baked from the beginning. I think even to counter to your point about 06, I think even if the economy was relatively stable and the Biden administration was able to say, listen, like, Trump's gone. The country yeah. feels a lot more calm now. We're on the other side of the pandemic. I think Republicans would still pick up seats because that's just the way it goes. Yeah. I mean, you know, we would have been back in that, you know, 10 to 15 range in the House, right. you know, but not a blowout. But, you know, I mean, the the economy, you know, jumping on board here is is causing it to, to look like maybe it's a 30 seater or so. Caitlin, governor's races, you have been uh, Cosin O'Connor and Cosin O'Connor Public Strategies point person at the Republican Governors Association this year. You've built phenomenal relationships with incumbent Republican governors, some of whom are superstars and looking at running for president. As you look at some of the key governors races, and particularly ones where there are Senate race implications, what are you seeing on the ground as we're you know three four days out here? Sure. Well, if you look down uh, down to Georgia. Um, Governor or current Governor Brian Kemp is running for re-election. And look, if Herschel Walker wins, if he wins and avoids a runoff, if he wins and gets to a runoff or reaches the point to get to a runoff, it will be because of the coattails of Brian Kemp. Um, that's a clear governor's race. He's running against Stacey Abrams, but he's way, way, way ahead of Stacey Abrams. And that is a clear um, area and state where he is helping a sort of problematic um, Senate candidate. I think in Pennsylvania, you're going to see something a, a bit different. I think we've we've talked a little bit about, and, and I think we all have differing opinions on split ticket voting. But Pennsylvania is the one the one state where I think you're going to see we've got Republican groups for Shapiro, um, Mastriano, the the candidate there isn't even Republican candidate for governor isn't even spending money on TV ads. He is kind of a, a whack job um, and. I think that's a clear area where, look, that that might be problematic for Oz. I think that's the one you know race where we're. I'm still a little unsure of which way I think that that race is going to go because the top of the ticket, Republican um, for governor there, is so weak. So it'll it'll really depend, I think, more on split ticket voting or how how you know big of a wave we see on election night. New York is fascinating. Um, I know some of my New York colleagues would probably disagree with me and say, oh, Caitlin, Hochul's fine. Don't you worry. But this week, um, you know, we've really seen Lee Zeldin, a former Republican member of the House of Representatives. He has made this race singularly about crime. 
And it is resonating, including in places in the suburbs of New York City. And keep an eye on that race. And don't sleep on that race. I really think he's got a shot. Of By the way, everyone's fine till they're not fine, right? Like, it's so easy to be like, yeah, they'll probably be okay. And then no one, the day after the election, no one talks to anyone. So it's not like. <laughs> well, we know, we know for a fact she's nervous <laughs> and fundraising. And we've got, I think uh, the VP was up there. Yeah. a couple times recently, and everyone's sort of freaking out a little bit about that race. And then in Oregon, we saw Joe Biden go to Oregon a couple of weeks ago in yeah. support of the governor there, Christine Drazen, I think I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, strong candidate, the right type of candidate. Open seat, um, right? Open governor's race. Yep. Really, uh, really making some inroads. Again, we're talking about Washington and Oregon, two states I never thought I'd be talking about. But that's a really the um, crime issue there is resonating watch. big time. Yeah. I mean, and then Ron DeSantis. I love talking about Florida. I remember earlier this year people talking about Rubio and being concerned about that Senate race and oh the polls and Ron DeSantis is is in, in, uh, versus Charlie Crist. No one's even talking about that race anymore. He's going to blow it out of the water. Rubio is going to do just fine. Florida, in my view, is no longer a purple state. I think it's pretty solidly red. But yeah, we've got some some great races across the country that are going to be really fascinating to watch. And it'll be interesting to see how that impacts some of these down ballot. And in New York, you were talking about the mm-hmm. Cook political shift this week, Patrick. I think the fact that Zeldin, even if he doesn't win, the role he's playing on those down ticket House races, several of the shifts were in New York, several of the sh- towards Republicans. Um, because he's got a lot of excitement. And so there's a lot of Sean Patrick Maloney's seat, for example, mm-hmm. in New York. A lot of places that we're seeing um, we're seeing a big impact on these Republican House candidates. There yeah. are, just to put a finer point on New York, there are nine races that would be considered, you know, either in a lean or a toss-up category, eight of which are Democratic-controlled districts in New York. New York, it... it <laughs> I I can't believe I'm saying this, but New York has the possibility of completely almost flipping to a red state overnight on November 8th, potentially. And, you know, if Democrats lose eight seats, they're not going to lose all eight of them because a couple of them are, you know, Biden 60 percenters. But a lot most of them were Biden 52, 53 percenter districts, including all of Long Island, I think is going to go back to being red. Uh, yeah. At this point, and a lot of the the collar uh, areas, uh, and especially all of upstate, um, and then you have the thing that that is remarkable to me about New York is, first of all, inflation doesn't resonate, in my opinion, in the New York race nearly as much because New York's just they're used to it. Yeah, they're just used to having. <laughs> you know what inflation is called? In New, New York, York, just what stuff costs. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, <laughs> it's been all about abortion versus crime, we get back to that original messaging that we were watching, and Zeldin won. I mean, he won on crime. He won to the point where no other Democratic candidate or incumbent in this case has flipped their messaging 180 like Kathy Hochul has in the last six weeks. She is fully, all of her ads are related to crime for the most part. She is, she is decided, and I think rightfully so, that if she's going to win this race, she has to do it on Zeldin's turf, which is amazing to, to consider in New yeah, York. It's, but not it's before saying in the debate that, uh, you know, crime wasn't an issue. Yeah, but, I think but, like, uh, I'm going to mention candidate quality, quality for the third or fourth time today. But like candidate quality in governor's races matters so much. I mean, it matters way more than I think 
Senate. I think yeah. we all in the House, it matters very little. Um, governor's races, it really does seem to matter. And I think you're going to see, we talked about the, the potential ticket splitting in Georgia and in um, Pennsylvania. I mean, even in the best sort of Republican scenarios, I, I, I'm still skeptical that Mastriano can win in Pennsylvania. Even I, I just don't. I, I mean, I, I talked to, and we got a lot of Philly listeners. My family members who live there said they haven't seen a single television ad for Mastriano, not yeah. one. No, um, which money. again, if it's a wit now, again, if it's a wave, he could still lose by only like four or five points. I mean, it's not impossible that. It, and but you know, he's just a terrible candidate. And. It, in New York, what's interesting is you have a strong challenge from someone who has some experience in politics and you have a sort of a little bit of a green incumbent, right? That's not to say Kathy Hochul hasn't been involved in politics for a long time, but she's on a much bigger stage. And no one elected her to be governor yet. Right. And then in Illinois, Illinois is not really particularly competitive because you have a seasoned incumbent and you have a horrendous opponent that that isn't able to make the the race really competitive again could still be a little closer than yeah. some people think so it's and just again, interesting because trump got involved right well, exactly and and because yeah. and in illinois because the democrats got involved in that primary and that's right trump we, we, we definitely did primary. yeah um well i i want to you know one observation i want to make too because you know we've followed the polls and they have been wrong a lot and they could definitely be and and by the way for the most part, the last several cycles, they have been wrong uh, in underestimating the Republican vote. I feel like particularly some of our listeners, Pat Carey in particular, who always thinks I'm just too hard on the Democrats. That was a nice shout out, by the way, Pat. Yeah, that's one of our loyal listeners. There could be there could be something that happens on Election Day that we just don't know yet. Right. I mean, if there is a real shift in turnout because of the Dobbs issue or something. I, I really don't know if a poll can pick that up, but it doesn't feel like that's happening. Now, if it does, we'll be talking about it, you know, for the next two years, right. Or next four years about what that really meant. But I think we're, we're all kind of settling into, you know, what is likely to be a good Republican night, potentially a great Republican night, depending on who comes out to vote. I want to It doesn't feel like that, but if you think about, you know, if Mark Alderman were here and I'm going to try to channel him for a couple channel seconds. your inner Mark Alderman. I am. I'm going to territory. I'm going to go to the <laughs> deepest bluest place that I can find and um and and just say, well, Kansas, they didn't expect they expected that referendum in Kansas on abortion to be a a slam dunk and, you know, look at look at how it turned out. So, you know, it still is very possible that abortion uh, is an issue that is underrepresented in the polls moving forward. But, you know, it seems that that it's not the case. It is that it is definitely as far as people are watching political ads, it is absolutely without a doubt the number one issue talked about in television commercials i mean yeah. that that i can after watching i mean we watch maybe in yeah. illinois but not here in virginia not in oh, virginia yeah, okay is. so yeah that's a good example. i mean in illinois i can tell you every yeah. single television it is the number one it's like the only issue on tv I mean, that's going to be the 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 statement from Democratic consultants. If Republicans do have a really good night on on Tuesday night, it's going to be we just blew a billion dollars on abortion ads across the country that did nothing at the end of the yep. day. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's a good point. So final takeaways is we sit down just for our listeners who are going to have out. You know, I mentioned Connor and I did a podcast yesterday. If you're following house races, Get on Twitter and follow at Redistrict. That's Dave Wasserman, who is mm-hmm. the 
Political Reporter's lead house race uh, analyst and caller. Uh, you can just follow him on Twitter and you're going to know what's going on because the guy's never wrong and he sees stuff in the data no one else sees and he'll just start calling races before the networks do. Um, and he's got his famous little lead in, you know, I've seen enough. And then he calls the race, which I, I was like, um, I've seen enough. <laughs> I've seen enough. Yeah, just I love please, that. No candidates <clears throat> declare um, declare a win before it's been officially called. Right. Right. Even election integrity here on the Beltway briefing. Right, exactly. But as the three of us sit down, we've got our, you know, our popcorn, uh, oh. you know, for for Caitlin, it's going to be champagne, I think for Patrick, it'll probably be like bourbon or some some dark kind of sad whiskey. Um, what what are you what is the number one thing you're sort of looking to see, particularly early in the night? And and yeah. I for any of our West Coast friends, it just gets really hard to stay up for some of those races. Oh, I'm uh, a- it's hard to stay up for some of those uh, sports uh, events too. But what what are you looking at? Like kind of final takeaway. What is the the kind of the most interesting observation you're hoping to learn from election night, Caitlin? I'll start with you. I think keeping an eye on the numbers in the New York governor's race is really going to kind of be the what I'm keeping an eye on to see how how big the wave really is across the country. Yeah, uh, and. And I think for for me, I mean, I'm looking at I'm looking really predominantly at three races on the East Coast, and that's going to set up for me what's going to happen on the on the West Coast. Um, those three races would be Elaine Luria, who's the the most endangered Democrat in Virginia too. She should lose as soon as the polls are closed at seven o'clock uh, in the Norfolk area. Uh, if she's if they can't call that race at seven o'clock, it might not be nearly as good for Republicans as we think. I'm looking at Rhode Island too that I mentioned before with Alan Fung, the Republican candidate. Uh, if he's winning at seven o'clock, you know, it's going to be a bad night for for Democrats. And then I'm looking at Susan Wild also in Pennsylvania and the in the Philly suburbs, because, you know, I, I think, you know, Philly between Susan Wild and Matt Cartwright, uh, if Republicans are having, you know, a 30 seat pickup night, both of those seats are probably gone. Uh, and that for me will then foretell what's going to happen, especially Illinois suburbs, but then as we get into the yeah. Southwest and the Northwest, um, those are the two big areas where Republicans, if they're having a good night, are going to run up the score after everybody goes to bed. And we might, you know, go to bed knowing that the house is going to flip, but wake up to a 35 seat, you know, flip or a 40 seat flip at the end of the night. Perfect. And I'll end with kind of what I'm observing on election night from the Democratic perspective all the talk on the Republican side about MAGA candidates versus non-MAGA candidates. Uh, We've got our own debate within the party too. I want to see how progressive darling Senate nominees perform versus someone like a Tim Ryan. And Caitlin, we we can get into it offline over a beer. I I do not think Tim Ryan is a progressive. I think he's run a really effective campaign. I think he's messaged really well. And if Tim Ryan loses the Ohio Senate race by like two or three points, and Mandela Barnes loses in Wisconsin by like five or six points, I want to have a conversation with my Democratic friends about that the next day and how we talk to people and what people care about and what normal, regular, everyday people care about. Because it's not a lot of the stuff that you see in the television ads. It's not a lot of the messaging you see on Twitter and Instagram. And my Democratic perspective is we will be in a semi-permanent minority in the United States Senate if we do not learn how to be competitive in red states, because there are more red states than there are blue states. That's just a mathematical fact. 
And if we want to get 50 plus one, this was in this majority we've had at 50, 50, this, this semi-majority was all because of what happened on January 6th and Trump's involvement in the Georgia races after that. Separate of that, we probably don't have a 50, 50 Senate. And in order to have a democratic majority in the Senate, we are going to have to find ways to elect people in red and purple states. And that otherwise we can be in the minority. I remember Jim DeMint when uh, Towner, when we worked in Congress, Jim DeMint said, I'd rather have 30 conservative senators than 55 squishy senators. If if people feel like that, fine. But I like being a majority. I like to win. And I'm concerned that uh, we have a real problem uh, statewide going forward. So Towner, Caitlin, so much fun chatting with you guys. We're going to be uh, all over this stuff. I think we're going to have a really interesting Beltway briefing for you next week. We'll have Mark and Howard back. We'll dissect all the results from election night, uh, even the the races that may, maybe have not yet been called or have, have gone to a runoff. Um, and but Patrick, for those out there that listen to it, feel free to email us about races. I mean, we love talking about this stuff. So, yeah. uh, you know, especially those who are who are out there and and uh, and have our email address and contact information, uh, feel free to uh, opine with us on uh, on election night. Thank you guys very much. Appreciate everyone listening and we'll see you next week. Have a have a great weekend everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington DC.